0: So, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians, we haven't made it all the way through chapter 1 yet, but we'll, we should, hopefully we'll knock off the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 today. So Paul's writing in the Corinthian church. Corinthians is great because it's addressing a lot of problems. This is not some, uh, some, some high theological treatise, it's very, very practical. So it's a wealthy, decadent city in Corinth, it's a port city in Achaia, southern part of Greece. And uh, so, Paul is definitely uh, in his letter countercultural. His instructions don't line up with the culture around them. There, he's telling them to behave as Christians are. So, it's countercultural in Corinth and in the, in the Greek speaking world in the, in the Roman Empire. And the first problem he addresses is division of the church in chapter 1, verse 12. Now, uh, each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. So they're identifying with prominent men in the church rather than just seeing themselves as Christians. And Paul talks about why they need to be unified just as Christians and not breaking into factions or, or, or like a sect type of mentality. He says he asked a, a several questions, rhetorical question. He said, "Was Christ divided? Well, no, obviously not. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Uh, was was were you was was Paul crucified for you? No, Christ was. Christ is crucified for them. So, and so he's he's addressing this problem, and he says that identifying with prominent men rather than with Christ is profoundly worldly and unspiritual." It's following the wisdom of the world. This is the, the, you know, the wisdom of, of, the, of the culture that they're surrounded with rather than the wisdom of God. And he, he develops that further in the passage we're going to read right now. So really this whole subject, of, this all falls under the first four chapters called Division of the Church. And he, Paul talks about some related things which are wonderful and deep. We're going to get into that. So this is discussion about the wisdom of the world Versus the wisdom of God. So I want to start off reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Mm-hmm. For you see, you're calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. That is, it is written, He who glorifies, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, except Jesus Christ, Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, uh, it tells you a little bit about the, the church there. This wasn't the church that was known for its sharp members. All right, This is the sharp people. Uh, Remember I was in a church in the past where they really really focused on let's let's reach out to the sharp people because then they can convert everybody else and they can help us to lead. And by the standards of the Greek world, most of the people in there they would not have been considered wise according to the flesh or otherwise outwardly impressive. But it sounds like at least a few were. It doesn't say that none of you had any worldly wisdom, it says most of you didn't. Um uh, and we're reminded also in Acts 18 it talked about Apollos who spent some time in Corinth was described as an eloquent man who was mighty in the scriptures. So there were some people who had some, uh, some, some wisdom that we appreciated by the world, but most people didn't. And uh, you know, there's a temptation. Certainly I hope nobody in this room would fall prey to that temptation, but there's a temptation among some Christians to try to impress those who are around us in the world by the success, talents, or worldly achievements that people in the church have managed to uh, manage to cobble together. And I think especially that can be a temptation place here like Boston, because it's Boston is a, you know, we're way, way out of the Bible belt. This is like the extreme, one of the ex- extreme opposite ends where uh, the things that are highly valued by Bible-believing Christians are generally looked down on. And people like us, by many of the people around here who are prominent, are considered to be, sorry to inform you, ignorant, out of touch, old-fashioned, unenlightened, bigoted, and narrow-minded. Okay, so that's, that's the way we look to the world unless we do a good job of hiding what we what we really believe and then you know and then they look at how the women are dressing and then that adds uh, more things on top of that so that's the way the world views us and who likes being viewed that way i don't particularly i don't like people looking at me and thinking well he's this he's a stupid ignorant person who believes all that stuff i don't like that um and so what, what, do, what, do, what do people do? You know, in, in the name of becoming all things to all men, um, there's a tendency to, there are certain things that we, we hold on to. The inspiration of scripture, the inerrancy of the Bible, a belief that there is only one narrow way to God through Jesus, and that's it. No one comes to the Father except through him. Uh, ideas that we have on disciplining children and protecting them from worldly influences and, and maybe homeschooling for, for uh, many of us for that. Uh, rejecting the views of the world, the popular views of the world on sex and sexual immorality and gender that go against what the scriptures clearly state. And then on top of that, if that isn't bad enough that we're blamed for things that are actually in the scripture, we're often associated, because we're Bible-believing Christians, with people who have professed Christ but are bigots, nationalists, racists, and warmongers, right-wing warmongers. We're lumped in sometimes completely unfairly with those people as well. So we're blamed for some things, we're looked down on for things that we're guilty of, as well as for things that we're completely innocent of. So we get, we get the, the worst of both worlds on that. So, in a desire to be respectable and to be respected by the world around us, there can be some temptations among Christians, I've seen this happen before in other, in other contexts, okay, to highlight Christians who have high academic achievements, or went to high, very competitive schools, or those who've been very successful in their business or their careers to highlight. Well, look at you know here we have some some people who are highly recognized by the world to show off their families. Well, we we have the perfect family and 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 we just want to show you how how great that is uh, and make them appear better than they actually are, or. Uh, show off that we have famous sports figures, movie stars, or other famous people in our midst. Which, uh, uh, to the best of my knowledge, we know we're not in danger of that right now. So, but you never know. It's all right. So we're trying to impress the world that we are cool, and we have plenty of worldly wisdom and credibility as well. So we want to we want to impress people with that. So, but the the, the proper perspective here that Paul has. It's not, yes, we're stupid people. It's, no, we have wisdom, but it's a different type of wisdom than the world has. Uh, It's not that wisdom is bad, but Christians have a complete seek and have a completely different type of wisdom than the wisdom that's valued by the world. So that's, that's what he's communicating here. Is that we're, We don't have that kind of wisdom the world's looking for. So let's, let's continue here in verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery." "...the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the hearts of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things." Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of of Christ, So he starts off, he says, the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age are coming to nothing, that they were the ones who crucified Christ. So a question comes up, the rulers of this age, is this talking about people or is this talking about the the dark forces in the, in the heavenly realm? And, uh, uh, and it says those are the ones who crucified Christ. Matt, I think of what it says in Psalm 2, let's read that. Why do the nations rage and the people meditate on vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands and cast away their yokes from us. He who sits in heaven shall laugh at them, the Lord shall mock them, He will speak to them in His wrath and trouble them in His anger. I was established as king by him over his holy hill of Zion, declaring the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall shepherd them with a rod; you shall shepherd them with an iron staff. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So this is the uh, the the nations rage; the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed. So I think that's that's what my opinion. That's what it's talking about there. the the rulers of this world gathering together against the Lord and his Christ. uh, John Chrysostom in his uh, homily number seven on 1 Corinthians, he also points this passage as referring to the human leaders, the rulers of this world. He says, now, by the rules of this world, he does not mean certain demons, as some suspect, but those in authority, those in power, those esteemed, the things worth contending about. The philosophers... The rhetoricians, the writers of speeches, these are the dominant sort and often become leaders of the people, the rulers of the world he calls them. So that's that's what, that's, what, that's his, yeah, Chrysostom says that that's not the only, but some people see it differently than that, that's how he saw it, that, that strikes me, it struck me the same way They're talking about the rulers, the rulers who are in this world here, um, there's a, 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 in the same work, John Chrysostom, he used an analogy that I really like. It's something about wisdom, and he's giving the example of somebody who wants to sail across the ocean. And he says, "All right, let's let's take two people who want to sail across the ocean. One of them decides, uh, you know, no sail, no boat. All right. He, one of them decides, I'm going to figure out from first principles." I'm going to derive all the, the laws of the universe and figure out by studying the oceans and the waves and gravity and everything else. I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'm a, I'm a great navigator, and I'm going to figure out how to cross the ocean all by myself. And he says, that's one person. He says, the other person is somebody who says, I have no idea how to build a boat. I can't make a sail. Okay, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't uh, make the rigging on a boat. I don't know how to navigate a boat. We said, but I do know some people who do. There's a guy who's, who's built their shipbuilders who've built a whole lot of good ships, and they're ship captains and pilots who have successfully sailed, sailed across the ocean. I'm just going to pay my fare to them, and I'm going to sail on the boat because those people know what they're doing. Now, which person has the most wisdom? The guy who admits he doesn't know how to cross the ocean, but he knows who does know how to cross the ocean. He says that's the wiser person. And that's the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, spiritual wisdom. The spiritual person realizes, I don't know how the world was created. I don't know what happens after you die. I don't know what I'm here for and how I'm supposed to live my life. But he says, but I do know somebody who does know because I know the one who was raised from the dead who conquered death, who's the son of God. I know him and I will ask him. I'll pay my fare and I'll ask him and he'll get me there. That's the wise one, as opposed to the wisdom of the world, where somebody sits down and they say, "I'm going to just kind of, I'm going to derive it and figure it all out for myself." Okay, so you could you could do the same with an airplane uh, uh, today. They didn't have airplanes back then; they had boats. But uh, but the, the point is the same. I'm going to put the, uh, the actual quote in, in the notes, and uh, he concludes that. And he says, I overcome wisdom not by foolishness, but by a more perfect wisdom, a wisdom too, so ample and so much greater than the other uh, that appears foolish. So that's, that's the, uh, you know, once you, once you realize that the, the, the man who says, I don't know how to cross the ocean, but, but I know somebody who does, he, he pays the fare. He's obviously the wiser person, Okay. I think in my own in my own example so I'm a uh, I'm a like 99% retired uh, environmental engineer they used to call that that a uh, sanitary engineer back in the old days okay and people want to know well, Chuck, what what is that what do you do i so said basically I pick up where the plumber leaves off, all right? That's what I do. So the plumber will handle everything from six-inch pipes down to smaller. So, so like this building we're in right, right here, you know, we've got sinks and we've got, we've got uh, restrooms here. And so the, uh, the plumber will take the six-inch pipe coming into the building and everything smaller for the water and then the wastewater, you know, from the, the drain and the toilets and everything else, they'll they'll take it out and they'll get it out to the out into the yard or into the street, six-inch side. Okay. My profession, we take it from there on both ends. We, we we'll take the water, treat it, pump it, pipe it, and get it there to the to the to the street, and then we'll take the wastewater and all the stuff in there, and then we'll we'll take it uh, to out to Deer Island, we'll treat it and, and discharge it in the harbor. So so that's what I do. I'm basically I pick up where the plumbers leave off. All right. And uh, at the end of my career I was I was asked to do a job which and, and the guy who's who's trying to the, you know the manager was trying to sell me on the job he said you know Chuck we want to give you an opportunity that most engineers would give their right arm to have okay you're going to be designing you'll be responsible the engineering manager responsible for giant designing one of the most complicated wastewater treatment plants on the face of the earth okay this is going to be in North America and uh, he said, we want you to, to run, the, run, the, run the job. I had nothing else to do, so I really couldn't say no. But, uh, so, but he, he thought it was, it was, it was a great, great compliment to give me the job. And uh, so people, you know, people, people hear that story and think, wow, you, you must be really smart to do that. And what you don't realize is I'm not an expert in anything. Okay? People who work with me know this as an engineer. I am not the expert in anything. My value is solely I know where the experts are in the company. So I could design something really complicated, not because I personally knew how to do it, but because I know an expert in instrumentation, advanced wastewater treatment, biology, chemistry, concrete, steel, structures, everything. I knew where all the, all the, the experts were. At one point in time, I had, a, I had a, an old friend who was trying to hire me out of the consulting business I was working for to work directly for him, because he thought I knew a lot. And uh, he had massive problems, and he offered a lot of money for me to come and join him. And I said, look, I'm, uh, as your friend, I'll tell you the truth, I'm better, I can help you better if I stay in the company here and just mine the experts within the company to solve your problems, okay? It'll be, it'll be cheaper for you in the long run, and you'll get a better result because, the, the, my value is not that I know so much, but, I, but I've been around here long enough, I know who to ask, and I know what I don't know. And, and, and I think, you know, to me, the, the people that I, uh, that, that I trust the most and have the most wisdom are the people who know what they don't know. They know what the limits of their own intelligence are, and mine drops off rather quickly. But I know that, and I can work with that and do, do uh, complicated things because I rely on other people. So. The the spiritual analogy here is, Paul is saying that the the people in the world who think that they know a lot, that the real wise people are the ones who are going to God for the wisdom and who are not going to the world. And they're the ones who know who to ask. So Paul, who does Paul turn to for wisdom? Well, he turns to God. And he turns more than to God. He he says in in First Corinthians two ten. He says God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. So he's so he's getting his wisdom. He says the Christians are getting their wisdom from the Spirit of God, which minds the deep things of God. They're going right to the top. To get spiritual wisdom rather than worldly wisdom. Now, in Isaiah chapter 11, it's a famous prophecy about Jesus. Turn there. He talks quite a bit about the Holy Spirit in this this section right here. But it, it, but I think of the passage in Isaiah chapter 11, famous prophecy of Jesus, which is fulfilled in his his baptism, where the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove, in the form of a dove. Isaiah 11, 1, there shall come forth a rod from the root of Jesse, and a flower shall grow out of his root. The Spirit of God shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and godliness. The Spirit of the fear of God shall fill him. So this is the wonderful passage about... Here, if reading from the Septuagint, it's the sevenfold spirit. So the, the first thing, this is the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding. Okay, this is the spirit of God. So uh, what's, what's the, why, why does that matter to us? Well, I think about what Jesus said in John 14, 15, 16, where Jesus said, I have to go. And the, the disciples don't want him to go. He says, no, you understand, I have to go so that the Holy Spirit can come. Okay. After I leave, the Holy Spirit can come. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to remind you of everything I said. Teach you all things. Okay. So the Holy Spirit was going to be guiding the apostles and setting the foundation for the church. You know, we we need we need spiritual wisdom, and I'm having. I mean, as I go. Further and further along in life, you think, all right, Chuck, you're almost 70 years old. You've been a Christian for decades. You should be able to coast at this point in time. You should run into all the problems you're going to run into. And no, that hasn't happened. I get new ones every year, and they they don't seem to be getting any easier either. Okay? We need wisdom from God, more wisdom. And I definitely feel it. Luke 11, Jesus talks about... In his uh, his explanation about the uh, the Lord's prayer, in his real Lord's prayer, he talks about how uh, we need to be asking for the spirit. God will give the spirit to those who ask Him. I think of the passage in Matthew chapter twelve, where He says the the queen of the south, this is the queen of Sheba, will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth, seeking Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus is the wisest man of all time. You know, we, we talked last time, I believe it was in um, Proverbs chapter 8, where in this past year in Corinthians, Paul talked about Jesus being the wisdom of God. And and a number of early Christians saw that in that passage of of Proverbs chapter 8 where it talks about wisdom being at the side of God and involved in the creation. Or in, uh, I think, also think of the passage in uh, Wisdom of Solomon chapter 9 where it talks about the wisdom of God. And there's so many things in that passage that that point to Christ as well. and that's why we need to. The Holy Spirit has has given us the Scriptures, and this is why we need to be meditating on the Word of God day and night, so that we can get the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, which has inspired the Scriptures. And I think particularly the uh, in in the midst of, of reading all the Scriptures and all the things that Jesus says that the Spirit gave to the apostles, and don't neglect the books of wisdom. I think of the book of Proverbs. Or in the uh, the, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of Sirach, that uh, you know, in in the Catholic, Catholic, and Orthodox Bibles, and in the uh, even the King James up until about 150 years ago, in there the great sources of wisdom. Uh, Paul says, "We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory." So here I'm going to launch into something. uh, a little, a little bit of a diff, different than what we usually talk about here. Uh, he says, "I speak of the wisdom of God in a mystery." Sorry, what's a mystery? I said I was doing a lot of, of digging in the scriptures, and what does he mean by the mystery? Is like, I think a mystery is something that's not not comprehensible. You can't understand. what's well, a mystery. You know, can you explain this to me? No, I, I, it's a mystery. I have, I have no idea. So that's the first thing I think of. Is a mystery is something you can't explain. But I'm looking in the scriptures to try to f- figure out when the word is used in the scriptures. What does it mean? First place, first place that that word shows up in the scriptures, and the Greek word that's used there is in uh, is in Daniel chapter two. It's a famous story of the four part statue. What happens is the king has a dream, and He has the dream of the four-part statue and then the rock comes and smashes it and and the wind blows it blows it away. And the king doesn't know what it's about and he asks all the wise men in the nation. They don't know what what to do about it and so he's going to put them to death. And then Daniel, Ah! Daniel believes, sees that God is the revealer of mysteries and he asks God, to explain, to reveal this hidden mystery to him, and God does, and God explains it to him, and he gives the credit to God for re- revealing the mystery. So, and, and looking at other places in the scriptures, the, the mystery in the scriptures, it's a spiritual truth that is in some way hidden or obscured from view, which has to be revealed in order to be understood. Okay, so he had the dream. The king saw the dream, but he didn't know what it meant. He couldn't put the pieces together. And so it's the same thing with the faith. It's a mystery, and they he says a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages. So the idea is that this was was there, and, and it's woven into the scriptures, but people couldn't fully understand it until Jesus revealed and explained it and brought it into the light. I think about, let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> Jesus talks about spiritual mysteries. But it's not something that can't be understood, it's something that's hidden that needs to be revealed, needs to be brought into light. Matthew chapter 13 talks about that in uh, verse 10. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? It's after Jesus told the parables so. Verse 11, he answered and said to them, because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him more will be given. He will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. Part of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn I should heal them. So Jesus is speaking in parables. And most of the people don't understand what he's saying. It's like, it's like the dream that the king had in Daniel chapter 2. There's a story, there's truth in there, but they can't, they can't access it. They're close to it, but they can't quite understand it. Jesus explains that's why he's teaching in parables. And then uh, further on in uh, verse, verse 34... It says, All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So this is the idea is that there are things that were that were in, in the form of parables or stories that were somewhat hidden that were there from long, long ago, but would be revealed in the last time. Uh, Paul talks a lot about mysteries and the faith as being a mystery. Not meaning you can't understand it, but just that it has to be revealed. In Romans 11, Ephesians 3 speaks about God's plan to save the Gentiles, which completely caught the Jews off guard, as being a mystery that has now been revealed and it was it was it was in the scriptures the whole time but it had to be revealed. And Paul says Romans 11:25 I don't know want you I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. And then he goes on this is just talking about Romans 11 some of the the story of the tree that the branches that were broken off because of unbelief and he says, "Well, if they broke the branches off, then they can certainly graft them back in again if they repent and believe." But there's a stern warning for us that if you don't continue in the faith, God broke them off; He can break you off too. All right. Uh, Ephesians chapter five. There's a famous passage that's that's uh, people refer to about marriage, about the husband, the relation between a husband and wife. And while it is, he's talking about the relationship between a husband and wife, the one flesh relationship, in verse 32 he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So he's using the figure of the relationship between a husband and wife to point to a mystery and to, to reveal a mystery that this is like the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh Corinthians four. the word mystery isn't there but but the con, the idea is there it says even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them so the God of this age obviously referring to Satan that Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe and their preference for darkness and sin, they can't receive the light of the gospel. It is blocked. It is hidden from their view. They can't see it. They can't get it. Uh, the ending of Rome is one of my favorite passages about about mysteries in Romans 16. Let's turn there. Over the last weeks, first time I really connected with this particular passage. I tend to brush brush over the closing benedictions. You know, just saying it's kind of a nice, God bless you. you Hope everything goes well. But this is actually pretty deep. Romans 16 and verse 25. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery of, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So that's pretty interesting here. He says that he's talking about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel he preaches according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. So this is uh, this is deep stuff. He's saying this is this is a mystery that's been out there, which now finally has been revealed and we understand it. And he says also by the prophetic scriptures Made known to all the nations, so God also had dispersed the, the the Old Testament scriptures, which had these prophecies to all nations. He said, "These are the these are the witnesses. The prophetic scriptures went out went went out to the whole world, and the revelation that has now been made known. The, the mystery has been explained." First Corinthians four, we're not we're not. I just want to want since this ties in with it, uh, verses one and two. Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. So this is the idea that God has entrusted. He's given this gift to us, the mysteries. And he's given the explanation. He's revealed the mysteries to us and he says that we are stewards of the mysteries of God, these precious mysteries that have been only revealed through Christ and the apostles, that we have that uh, we have that to take to the world. So, some just some some concluding thoughts. What we've touched on today. Uh was a battle! that's raging around us with two different types of wisdom it's not the wise people against the stupid people it's the people with worldly wisdom versus the people with godly wisdom and I want to be the man who realizes I don't know how to cross the ocean but I do know somebody who does and I'm going to pay my fare and get on the boat and have, the, have a captain that I trust take me where I need to go that's the wise man that I want to be Not the man who thinks that he's going to be able to invent a a sailing ship from scratch and figure everything out by himself. Uh, The wisdom that's valued by the world is not so important. So don't be fooled by it and don't try to impress other people with that either. Let's understand what we don't know and know who to ask and where to go to find the source of true wisdom. The Spirit of God knows the deep things of God, and that's the Spirit that we have access to, the Spirit that dwells that dwells in us when we become Christians, the Spirit that inspired the Scriptures that we need to be meditating in day and night. The truly wise turn to God and the Spirit of God rather than the world for wisdom. And the Spirit who knows the deep things of God will give us that wisdom. We need to ask for more of the Spirit and to seek the wisdom of the Spirit all the time. Also realize the gospel isn't just some formula, some mechanical formula. The gospel is a mystery that was hidden from the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through Jesus Christ. We've been entrusted with a mystery, but we need to prove faithful, as Paul said. So let's grasp the mystery that's been revealed and be equipped to share it with others and realize that some people, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, will be blinded by Satan and won't get it because they prefer darkness and sin. We're in a spiritual battlefield, we bring the light, and those who with good hearts, like those who would, who would understand the parables, will open their eyes and open their ears and see and receive it. Amen.